recording on this computer. And I believe we are ready to go. Okay, well, uh, one more person, there's Lynn. Well, this is the third week in our series on uh, the journey to the God of love. And, you know, as I prepare for this, I, as always, uh, I think about how woefully uh, inadequate uh, this, this study is. And, but it just brings home the, the idea that is so important. Uh, and that is that, um, you know, in order to know scripture and to know it well, uh, we have to read the whole of scripture. And it seems that uh, we uh, tend to focus a lot just on uh, the New Testament. And I, I, you know, the New Testament is the last one third of the Hebrew Bible. And so, um, you know, the, the fact that we don't know the Hebrew Bible as well as we should and the history of its development and how it is that uh, Israel the people of Judah, the Hebrews, the Jews, uh, came to know their God. Um, it is not just simply a, uh, a, a composite of, of material that came down all at once. You know, we often think of the Bible as falling out of the sky, you know, like Moses getting the Ten Commandments. But, you know, the, the history of Israel really does begin historically with Moses. And there are commandments, a covenant that God uh, gives to the people of Israel in order so that they can be God's covenant community. And it's early on understood, as we uh, saw in our, um, our first uh, series of lessons, that there was a quid pro quo that if the people of Israel followed the commandments, uh, then they would be blessed. And if they did not follow the commandments, then they would be cursed. And we looked at Deuteronomy 28, and especially, you know, that whole chapter on um, uh, what lay in store for the people uh, if they did not follow the commandments. Now, unfortunately, uh, this came to be uh, emphasized in the early years of, of Israel's uh, history, all the way up to the time of the Babylonian captivity around 587 BC, that God was a stern God, a God of law, a God that demanded compliance with the covenant. And if Israel, here's how the logic went, if Israel uh, had, was experiencing um, any kind of uh, difficulty, uh, if they were experiencing oppression at the hands of uh, external rulers, it was as a result of their not following the covenant and God punishing them. So uh, all of this came to be uh, foundational to the theology of early Israel. However, something happens in the Babylonian captivity. And this, is our, this was our second, uh, our se second session. Uh, people in Babylon, by this time, the people of Judah uh, they're a small group of, of Israelites that have um, been taken to Babylon. They do their best to follow God's covenant. The priests, you know, elaborate laws. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of their faithfulness to the covenant, which was a very hard thing to do because, you know, you're in a, a dominant culture with Babylonian gods and the temptation is always there to fall away from your you know, Jewish culture. Uh, but the way they were able to maintain that was by following the law. But in the midst of following the law, uh, and also because of some uh, exposure to other philosophical traditions, there were some among the Jews who began to speculate about who God is, what God's covenant uh, required, and who they were as a people. Uh, and in the midst of all of this, a new understanding of God comes about, that God is uh, not so easily put in a box, that God cannot just simply be confined to this quid pro quo that they knew before, uh, that God, there's a mystery to God. There is also this sense that God is a universal God, that these other gods out there simply do not exist. 
that God is in control of not just the people of Israel, but of the universe. So the focus on creation and this mysterious God comes to take uh, center stage. And the literature that uh, ensues after this, in the year 539 to all the way up to, you know, well, if we include some of the books of the Apocrypha, all the way up to the time of Jesus, uh, this is known as wisdom literature, that there is in nature, in creation, a wisdom of God that is not um, easily reduced to uh, human logic. If you do this, then God does that. If you do this, then God does that. So after Babylon, there came to be a diversion, you might say, uh, two ways of understanding who God was. Some Jews stuck to the, uh, the, the path of righteousness that they believed was what was expected of them, and that was becoming righteous by observing the law. Some Jews maintained that structure. And so you have a very, very stern legalism uh, that uh, is the focus of, of that approach. And we refer to that as uh, the, what might be called the centripetal approach. The righteous will be the center and all nations of the world will focus in, you know, like a, a whirlpool will come to the center and, you know, uh, uh, be, be influenced by that righteousness as well. The other approach, how to be the light of the nations, is the more centrifugal approach. If you arrive at a new understanding that God is universal, and a new understanding that the character of God is not quite so predictable, then this becomes a message for the nations. And this is the centrifugal approach, going out into the nations and uh, informing them of the right, what it means to be righteous and how this uh, is consistent with the so-called wisdom of God. And so this uh, introduces a God of surprises and this reflection on the idea that within God, there's wisdom that is uh, not, you know, we're not so much privy to it. God is the creator. We can see this wisdom who was with God in the beginning. We read that the last time from Proverbs. And it's through this wisdom that the world itself was created. Uh, and at wisdom's core, there is a, a, a mysterious working of God's will. And we see this clearly in uh, the book of Job. So this wisdom literature that was written at this time includes books like, well, there's, there are many Psalms, Psalm 8, Psalm uh, 104, for example. Uh, there is the book of Job. There is the, uh, there's Proverbs. There's Ecclesiastes. In the Apocrypha, there's the Wisdom of Solomon. There's the Song of Solomon. Um, these are texts that we don't often get to read too much in, uh, in worship. Um, but the, if you remember the book of Job, it's set up to, to give us a, you know, a, a comparison of these two uh, approaches to understanding God. Job is beset by many troubles. Actually, it's as a result of a, a bet between God and the Satan or uh, uh, the accuser. By the way, the first time Satan appears in the entire Old Testament, uh, the name Satan. Um, and Satan says, you know, your, your buddy Job down there, you give him everything, no wonder he worships you. And God said, well, if I took everything away, he'd still worship me. And Satan says, okay, you're on, let's make a bet. And so they make a bet. God takes everything from Job. He, you know, all of his wealth, all of his riches. He kills his family. Uh, you know, it seems like a, a strange thing for this, this God to do. But Job is in the midst of it all, and he knows that he has been righteous, right? I've followed the law, darn it. I have done everything. And as a result, you know, God has rewarded me. That's the easy equation. Well, now he, he is sitting there with a boils all over his, uh, his body, and um, his friends come to him, and they try to explain, look, Job, it's the easy, it, this is the equation that we talked about in Deuteronomy. You must have done something wrong. You know, you must have, you know, 
offended God in some way. And Job says, I know I have not. I have been righteous in every way. I've followed the law. Uh, and they, all four of them, you know, they all walk away saying, no, no, there's something that you're just overlooking. You're either lying to us or, and so eventually Job pleads with God and says, what, what in the world have I done to deserve this? You know, it's a little bit upset with him. And this is where God comes in and pretty much tells Job, listen, you have no idea why I do the things that I do, but you must know that I am in control of the universe and what I do, there is a reason behind it. In other words, the wisdom of God is inscrutable. It's something that's beyond human understanding. So this is a, I, can't remember if I read this last week or not, but this is that great scene in the book of Job where God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. I mean, what a wonderful image of chaos, right? Of, of mystery, of complete uh, disorder. Uh, and God, you know, this God of order that we also you know, want to affirm, nevertheless, seems to be a God of disorder as well. He's speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. Uh, and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, who is this that, count, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Um, and then God goes on and on. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and it is dyed like a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and their uplifted arms is broken. Arm is broken. Um, have you entered the realms of the eternal sea? Have you entered the realms of the celestial heavens? You have it. So don't feel as if, you know, I, God, work according to your very two-dimensional human logic. There is a mystery to the word of God. There is a mystery to the works of God. So the character of God, as we find in Job and we find in the wisdom of, uh, literature, somehow transcends that earlier understanding of the quid pro quo. Do this, God rewards you. Do that, God, you know, uh, punishes you. Uh, the character of God confounds human understanding. So there are new, that's one of the aspects of wisdom literature that uh, developed between Babylon and the time of Jesus. And the other is that God's wisdom is not just the wisdom for the Israelites. It's not just the wisdom for the people who are now being called Jews at this time. Uh, but it's universal. This is a God of creation, right? Now, a new logic enters the equation here. If God is a God who is universal, the God of creation, and God wants there to be righteousness in the world, we know that from God establishing the covenant, then is it possible for the Gentiles also to be righteous? Because God is their God as well. So if God is universal, then doesn't God care also for the Gentiles? And this causes a breach, really, in the Jewish tradition. There are going to be some who say, absolutely not. God chose us as the exclusive chosen people. But others are going to say, uh, you know, I don't think it's that easy. Uh, God is a God, a universal God, who created the world, God has care for this world. We might even say God loves this world. If that is the case, then God wants the entire world, all of creation to be redeemed, not just a handful of people. So I wanna stop there as I, I usually do, uh, 15 minutes into our, our discussion. Are there any uh, questions? And, and please just unmute yourself and jump in if you would. Uh, I'll look for looks of uh, dismay or uh, uh, 
questioning on, on anyone's face. Well, I didn't say hello to Ann or Rich or Kenton or Karen. How is, how's everybody doing? And Lynn, good to see you all. Any questions or comments, I should say? Well, if not, let me, let me uh, introduce to you two books that we often hear about. In fact, if you were at Damon's wedding, uh, you heard something spoken from the book of Ruth, where you go, I will go. Uh, Ruth and Naomi, uh, Ruth speaking to her mother-in-law. Um, that story and the story of Jonah are two narratives that are introduced at this time as kind of parables by the wisdom people who want to try to explain to the legalistic, you know, law-abiding Jews how it is that God can work mysteriously in the world. And you might know the book of Jonah. Uh, God calls Jonah, hey, I want you to go up to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to him. Nineveh, in, you know, present-day uh, Iraq, or uh, at that time it was Assyria, uh, I want you to go there and I want you to preach to him. And Jonah says, I don't think so. That's not, <laughs> that is not the job for me. So he does the logical thing that anybody would do if he or she assumed that God was a local God, right? I'll just leave. I'll just get out of here, right? Go to the sea. Everything will be fine. You know, I'll cross the sea. That God will be, you know, contained way back where I left. Um, so Jonah follows that logic. And it's while he is at sea that the sea begins to rumble. Here's the God of creation, right? And there begins to be chaos on the sea. And the, and the uh, sailors say, boy, there's got to be somebody on the ship that's caused this. They all drew straws. And the straw is, uh, you know, uh, indicated that Jonah was the person. So they threw Jonah over the side. And Jonah is swallowed by Leviathan, the whale. It's interesting, the whale in this story, uh, Leviathan, is a, a kind of a trope that we see throughout the Hebrew Bible that represent, represents chaos, the chaos that was in the beginning. This was an animal that the Jews, by the way, are not a seafaring people. When they want to come up with an image of chaos or with an image of disorder, the sea is usually the order uh, or is usually the image they draw on. So Jonah is thrust into the belly of the whale, into the midst of chaos, but it is still there that God has control. God is not the local God that is just isolated to Jerusalem and the area that we now call Palestine, or the Romans called Palestine. God is the God of all of creation. Eventually, three days later, Jonah is spit out, and God says, hey, what are you, what are you doing? You know, I called you to go to Nineveh and to preach. And Jonah says, well, I guess I better do it because I, my, my trip uh, away from Jerusalem or uh, away from Israel was not successful. So he goes to Nineveh and he's, you know, he's getting kind of psyched about it because he knows that the Ninevites being complete pagans uh, are never going to listen to God's word. And so he goes and he preaches to them. And, and lo and behold, what happens is they repent. And God is merciful to them. He does not destroy Nineveh. And then Jonah gets all upset about it. You know, uh, he goes and he, he kind of pouts under this tree. <laughs> and, uh, and God has a kind of a, if you pardon the expression, come to Jesus moment with him, you know. But what, what are you so upset about? Well, because I, here I did all this preaching to the Ninevites, and, and you end up, you know, forgiving them. And God says, well, that was kind of the, the, the reason I sent you, right? And so the idea that these pagans can hear the word of God and respond well to it suggests that God has a concern not just for the Israelites, not just for the people of the covenant, but there's a new covenant that seems to be developing a new covenant that's in place the world now all nations gentiles uh 
it seems possible that they might be able to come under the dictates of, of or under the, uh, uh, the blanket of the covenant. Uh, just very briefly, another story that's told at this time. Remember, these are rhetorical narratives that are trying to emphasize the universal God and why God is concerned about more people than just, you know, uh, the nation of Israel. The story of Ruth, Ruth uh, and Ruth marries uh, a good Israelite man and uh, Ruth's husband and Naomi's husband die. And uh, I think they were Moabites. Uh, they were in Moab, and now Ruth is completely on her own, which is a terrible place to be if you are a woman in the ancient Near East, because you have no protector. And so Naomi says, I'm going back to my homeland. I'm going back uh, to Israel. I'm going back to the people uh, of my tribe. And Ruth says, I, I want to go with you. Where you go, I will go. Um, so Ruth does. Eventually, uh, she meets a man named Boaz, and I'll shorten the story. Uh, uh, she meets a man named Boaz, and Boaz takes her as his wife. Now, the result of their union happens to be the grandfather, or if I'm not mistaken, yeah, the grandfather of David, uh, the king, the great righteous king of Israel. So the moral of the story is, you know, God works in these mysterious ways. God is working three or four or five uh, steps down the, down the line. Uh, and if, a, if something as great as the King David or King Solomon after him can come out of this union between Jew and Gentile, then obviously God has some other um, uh, part to play in this than the one that we have presumed all along. So there develops at this time two trajectories, one of those in the Jewish tradition, one we might call the, the trajectory of law, following the law and so that God rewards you and that will be righteousness. That is a bit of an oversimplification, but for our purposes, I wanna to stick to it. And the other one being a God of grace, a God whose ways are mysterious, but a God who has nothing but good will, and we can begin to say love for the world. So much so, it was out of the love between the creator God and the wisdom of God that the world came into being. God uh, took pleasure, delighted in wisdom, Sophia, or Hakma, excuse me, uh, the Hebrew word, and it was through this union between God and female wisdom, that creation came into being. And the light of creation, the light of God and the wisdom of God still pervades all of creation. So God is concerned. God is, um, uh, he is part of the created order in that God is uh, involved with the created order. So this brings us, by the way, this is God speaking to Job out of the, out of the whirlwind. Uh, this is uh, the great poet and artist, William Blake, um, illustrated the book of Job uh, and, and, and wrote his own uh, translation of it, his own interpretation. And this is the illustration of, of Job down below listening to God, speaking from the whirlwind, the God of surprises. So let me, um, let me stop again and see if there are comments that anybody would like to make uh, or questions that people might like to. Isn't it wonderful getting to know the Old Testament, so to, or the Older Testament as we like to call it? Uh, there are so many important stories there. Um, oh, you know, Dan, I, I, I would make one comment and this is maybe a logical leap that I shouldn't make but I'm going to make it anyway and, and that is God has um, you know this force of good that we can't understand has this union with wisdom now my logical leap is that means that in some sense ultimately evil 
is stupid. So I'll leave please, it there. Please, please elaborate. This does create a problem. And I mean, well, I mean go ahead. No, well, well and, and, and the example that I think of is that in, in Dante's Inferno, um, the creature that who is the absolute base of the Inferno and that everything else is dependent on is Satan. And Satan is there keeping that part of the Inferno cold by flapping his wings. And of course, his problem is, is that he's trapped in ice. And so, right. you know, if he just quit flapping, you know, and, and, and so I see a little bit of comfort in that, I guess. Yeah. You know, so and anyway, just, just tossing that in. Well, you raise, you raise the important question that is uh, a theological problem that has brought us right up to this point in time in 2020. And that is, well, if God is the only God, and God is the God of creation, and all things, you know, are uh, created through God, through God's wisdom, then is evil part of God's plan? Uh, this is the problem with monotheism. Uh, it's the, the classic threefold question. If, if you hold any two of those, the third one is nat naturally going to uh, be thrown out as illogical. First of all, God is omnipotent, all-powerful, can do anything. Second, God is a loving God. The third, what is the third one? I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Evil exists. God's all-powerful. God is good. Evil exists. If you hold to any two of those, the third is naturally going to be eliminated. If God is all powerful and God is all good, then evil cannot exist. And believe it or not, this is the Augustinian answer to the problem. Evil is not a presence created by God. God evil is an absence, an absence that through human will comes to be a, a complete nothingness, uh, the absence of good. The other possibilities, and this is one that uh, a theologian after World War II, who went through World War II, who was a reformed theologian by the name of Karl Barth, uh, he arrived at this conclusion that is, sounds illogical, uh, but it's one that is satisfying in its own way as well. First of all, God uh, is a good, a God that is all good. He is a God of love. God is a God of love. Nevertheless, evil exists in the world and sometimes overwhelms the goodness in the world. Therefore, God cannot be omnipotent. That's a toughie because God, by God's very nature, we want to assume can do anything, all powerful, right? So which one of those three do we give up? The goodness of God. Um, Go ahead, Dan. I, I, I was thinking, and, and and maybe again, I'm I'm dodging something, but just because God can do anything doesn't mean God does do anything. And if God is working somehow in ways that we don't understand, then there's going to be some hideous stuff that goes on. And 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 so the thing that really troubles me about that is. It is why doesn't God intervene in some of these situations? I mean, I don't have any answer, but I think, I mean, to me, God is still omnipotent, but you have these times when you think, well, you know, like, like during the Holocaust. Exactly. Right. And, and so that's kind of what I, what I keep coming back to. Well, right. And so the two possibilities are, is that God won't or God can't. And many Jews, uh, after the Holocaust, basically gave up their theology and became simply cultural Jews. Uh, there's a, a, a move, movement in Judaism that just says, I, I, you know, I'm a, a, a cultural Jew. I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. Um, because they did not want to worship a God who would not intervene or who could not intervene. Well, you can sure see their point. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, Augustine's or uh, St. Augustine's answer to the problem was a, was a philosophical one. Evil is not the presence of something, it's the absence of something. But I do want to say that this whole idea of omnipotence is not necessarily a Hebrew idea. It's a logical idea that comes out of Greek philosophy, that if God is the greatest of all things, then God must be able to do all things. If God cannot do all things, then God is not the greatest of all things. Therefore, God must contain all of the superlatives, all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, present everywhere, right? Uh, that, that is not an understanding of God that comes out of an experience of God, like the Hebrew experience. That's an understanding of God that has been logically derived. And so um, this is the place where the Hebrew tradition would come back in and say, I remember Job, you know, your logic. Uh, uh, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than your philosophy can uh, Imagine, I think that line from uh, Hamlet, I don't know if I've said it correctly, but I've always taken a little comfort in that, you know, more in heaven and earth ratio than your philosophy can imagine. Um, but let's look at the early Christian sources here. And, uh, let me see, are there any other people who might want to comment or make a, a please feel free, this conversation is wonderful. I really do feel like I'm hogging the conversation too much of the time, so. Well, what, what happens to this new trajectory of the God of grace in the early, early Christian tradition? And I think it's important to point out here that when we go to the earliest Christian sources, believe it or not, they're not the gospels. The gospels were written historically around 70 of the common era to 100 of the common era. But as early as 48 of the common era, you have a one-time Pharisee by the name of Saul, who is converted to the Christian tradition. He changes his name to Paul to represent the fact that he is the missionary to the Gentiles. And that conversion experience that he had might best be uh, described as, uh, you can see my cursor down here, jumping ship from one of the trajectories, Jewish traje tra trajectories of righteousness by following the law to another trajectory, righteousness as a gift that comes from God, not from anything that Paul has done, certainly not from anything that uh, Paul deserves, but simply out of the grace of God. And this is where we get the, um, you know, the famous uh, reformed, saying, I mean, biblical uh, verse, that we are saved not by God's, uh, not by our acts of, of righteousness, not by following the law, but there's a new covenant that has been established in the blood of Christ, and uh, that God demonstrates to the world through the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, a new character of God that God is doing the ultimately illogical thing, that God is the God who is infinite, right? The God who is unbounded, taking the form of one who is bounded, right? Incarnation, God becoming human being and doing the one thing that God can't do. A God is eternal. A God can't die, right? So now you've got a Christian tradition where all of the logic is being upset. All of the logic is being completely derailed. The infinite God becomes finite. The God who is eternal takes on a 
temporal form. The God who cannot die, dies. That is a demonstration of the extent to which God will go in order to demonstrate God's love for the world. To become, and to, to completely take on the form of the other. To empathize, you might say. But it goes far more than empathy. Uh, and this is why this, um, this famous altarpiece that I have here, I don't, think, I don't know if you can see it, I don't know how your uh, images are lined up on your screen, uh, but it's known as the Eisenheim altarpiece. There's a, it's from the 16th century, if I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> and it depicts the death of Christ at, uh, you know, at Cal Calvary, uh, Golgotha, the Hebrew word for it, Aramaic word, the place of the skull, as depicted by the Gospel of John. Uh, over on the right, you see, if you can see it, you see the apostle with the Gospel open and he's pointing a finger, kind of a wretched finger, really, at Christ, as if the Gospel itself points to this new covenant that is inexplicably illogical, but nevertheless demonstrates the love of God. Down below, you see the Lamb of God, uh, who, whose blood is shed, and you see the cup of the altar. Um, down below on this end, you see the completely other, you might say. I, I want to make a historical reference here. This is Mary Magdalene, who by this time was being interpreted as the woman with, who brought the alabaster jar of, of, of anoint of ointment to, to Jesus to, to you know, wash his feet, uh, was considered a prostitute. Um, it's clear that Mary Magdalene and the woman who, <clears throat> I shouldn't say it's clear, it's not clear that Mary Magdalene and the woman who, uh, who, who brought the alabaster jar of ointment were the same woman, but in tradition, they became the same. So Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. And here she is at the bottom of the cross, uh, you know, acknowledging her uh, commitment and her love of Christ. And then over here, Mary, the Virgin Mary being consoled by uh, a character that's in the Gospel of John, uh, known as the beloved disciple. We don't know who this guy was, but he's this person that Jesus loves the most, who is never named <laughs> throughout the Gospel of John. But it's really interesting how Mary is clothed uh, in this. Because the Eisenheim altarpiece, if I'm remembering my history correctly, really features a Christ. I mean, if you get up and, and look at the marks on Jesus' body, you see all of the uh, deathly human aspects uh, of Christ. The church at which this altarpiece was displayed at various times of the year uh, housed a leper colony. And you can see on Jesus' body uh, the marks, if you get up close, the marks of, of a leper. Um, you can also see Mary Magdalene dressed in a manner that uh, is not common for this time, usually by this time, I mean, it's, it's post-Renaissance into the modern age. Uh, well, it's, it's in the Renaissance, but G Mary is usually dressed in what color? Anybody remember? Blue? Blue, yes. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 a, what one of my Catholic friends from New York used to call that special color, Blessed Mother Blue. <laughs> yes, yes, right. Uh, the celestial color, the, the heavenly color of virginity. Uh, but Mary here is dressed in, in white, the, the one who, almost as if to offer a point of representation for those who were taking care of the lepers, right? But there's so much about this, uh, this image that represents the God of love that we see in the Gospel of John. Uh, the God who uh, 
comes into the world to take on human form. Uh, and, and later on in the letters of John, we're going to see that John himself equates God with love. But this God of grace, not so much God of love, but grace is, you know, the form of love, or love is a form that grace can take, um, uh, is throughout Paul's early letters. And so if you read um, his letter to uh, the Romans, for example, see if I can find my place here. When Paul was converted, when he was Saul and was converted, he had a realization, and people throughout history would have the same realization. As human beings tried their hardest to a, a, appeal to God through their works, Augustine would have this revelation. Martin Luther would have this revelation. That one can become righteous not by trying to give anything to God. One becomes righteous by what God has done in giving to us. So Paul says to the Romans, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this is something that in the last 15 minutes that we have uh, to consider uh, that we really won't be able to get to, but Paul's theory of atonement, something happens on the cross that now transforms the old covenant into a new covenant. The shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross is a demonstration of God's grace. And it's through simple belief in that new covenant through Christ that we become righteous before God. It's not because of any works of the law. And so this is picked up explicitly in the Gospel of John as well. And uh, I will only say here that I, John seems to have fallen in the same uh, uh, school of thought as those who write the wisdom tradition, because John opens his gospel with a whole new creation account, affirming that the God of creation is behind this new covenant that John is giving witness to, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that was Genesis, right? But in John, it's in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And all things are created through this word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally pitched his tent among us, taking on that very vulnerable um, form of existence that nomadic people know so well. Our English translation doesn't do it justice. Living in very, very uh, precarious circumstances. God takes on the role of the other, takes on the experience of the other. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the light comes into the world, but uh, the world does not recognize it as its own. Uh, but John is going to attest to the life of Christ in a way that is going to develop this theme that the character of God is best known through the single experience that we have uh, as love, as being able to place ourselves into the lives of others and empathize to literally suffer with or suffer in uh, uh, that person's uh, experience. Uh, John is also, you know, through his, uh, through his, uh, what's called the prologue to the Gospel of John, is affirming, as you know, many Jews were at this time, the universal God uh, is also the God of love, or the God of love is also a universal God. And early on in John's Gospel, he's going to give uh, an example 
of how this God comes into the world and is able to enter into the suffering of another. And it's through the story of the woman at the well and the gospel of John chapter four, early on, early on in the gospel, Jesus turned the water into, into wine. Uh, he, he has disciples with him and he's going, by the way, in John, he, he does a lot of trips between Nazareth, uh, between Galilee and Jerusalem. They're on their way to Jerusalem and they're passing through Samaria, which by the way is, uh, is important to note because Jews did not usually pass through Samaria. It was like, you know, you don't drive through the bad part of town. You usually take the outer belt or whatever so you can get to your destination. But walking through Samaria with a group of Jewish men, disciples, uh, is a statement in and of itself. Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I'm going to sit down by this well. It happens to be the well that Samaritans, Samaritans were enough like Jews that the Jews could despise them uh, for the way that they, uh, if I can use the term bastardized, the tradition. Uh, they believed that many of the events of the Old Testament concerning Abraham happened in Samaria and not in uh, places that the Jewish tradition uh, espoused at that time. So Jesus sits down at this well that was uh, a well of Abraham. It's the middle of the day and he tells his disciples, you guys go get something to eat. I'm just gonna rest here, okay? And way leads on to way that the disciples move into, uh, they, they move and Jesus is there alone. And a woman comes to the well. Now it's the middle of the day. And so most women go to the well at the beginning of the day when the day is cool, you know, and they, they gather their water so they have water for the rest of the day. But the very fact that this woman is coming at the middle of the day in the heat of the day says something about her that she's despised even among her own. Uh, most likely a, a prostitute. She has been with many men um, and she meets Jesus there. And Jesus does something that no Jew would ever think of doing. He asks her to minister to him, give me a drink. Uh, now remember the tra trajectory of the law people. Those, that kind of uh, demand or that kind of request is never going to be made because what you would be drinking would be defiled, right? Jesus doesn't have a problem with it. He doesn't have a problem either with the fact that if you want to find a representative of a despised group, if you want to find a representative of the other, this woman is it. She's got three strikes against her. First of all, she's a woman, <laughs> uh, which, you know, so her gender is a strike against her. Uh, you notice that these men are traveling, you know, not in the company of women. That's in Jewish traditional society, men and women were very separate from each other. And Jesus is meeting her, not afraid to meet her in the heat of the day in an open area uh, where everybody can see what's going on. Second of all, she's a Samaritan. Uh, the conflict between Samaritans and Jews had been going on since, well, around the time of uh, probably 700 years uh, when when uh, Samaritans were brought after the 10 tribes of Israel were destroyed, there were other, uh, by the Assyrians, the Assyrians brought other people in, outsiders, and established them there. Uh, it's the way, you know, colonialization happened at that time. Pick up people, move them to new places. And so the Samaritans were the result of that. Jews hated them. And third of all, she is an unclean uh, woman by virtue of her lack of virtues, you might say. And Jesus is doing the one thing that no one can possibly imagine, entering into that woman's um, suffering, entering into that woman's experience. Give me a drink. In response, I will give to you living water. I will give to you living water. This living water is open to you. 
So like Jonah, like the book of Ruth, like the wisdom tradition, we have a, uh, a savior, a redeemer, who is very clearly demonstrating through his incarnation, but also through his ministry, this inclusiveness of God that's based on uh, this understanding of love, that God is, is love, that God accepts by grace, despite all of the uh, exterior, uh, despite all of the exterior realities of, of who you are. It's simply a gift. It's not because you're giving him water, and it certainly isn't because, uh, you know, you, you are a woman of virtue, but it simply is because you are. You are a created soul uh, by the God who is a God who offers universal love, who is a universal creator. So uh, John, the author of the Gospel of John, also wrote letters. John, and I know we're coming up on our time, so I want to give people an opportunity to talk. But in the first letter of John, uh, written to, you know, the Johannine community, the church that John founded, no doubt, and it's clear that the, the gospel writer also wrote these letters because the theology is consistent, the writing style is consistent, um, but he tries to impress upon them this new understanding of a new covenant that has been established in the blood of Christ. And that is that God is a God of universal love. That being the case, if God is a creator of all, if human beings are created in the image of God, then logically, you might say, uh, human beings are created in the image of love. If that is the case, then every aspect of our life, from our waking to our sleeping, to our praying, to our eating, to our, uh, the way that we interact with others, should demonstrate, should reflect that essential character of who God is. You are love. God created you as love. It's not by virtue of your amazing faith or your amazing uh, 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 reliance upon the law. Uh, it's simply because God loves you. In return, you being created in the image of that God must also love others. So I want to uh, leave us now with um, this line uh, from the first letter of John, there's a few verses. Uh, John encouraging the Johannine community uh, to be that love in the world. Uh, and it's one that, you know, we probably all memorized as, as children. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent God's only Son into the world that we might live through him. That emphasis on incarnation. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But... If we love one another, God lives in us, and God's love is perfected in us. John is, I love this last line, no one's ever seen God. But the next closest thing is for you to act on the love that is within you as a result of your faith in Christ, as a result of your baptism in Christ. You are God to the world. The love of God must live through you. Uh, and of course, this comes through with the help of the Holy Spirit because we can't do it on our own. Now, this is another aspect of uh, Pauline theology. It's you know, nevertheless, though forgiven, we're still sinners. So we have to rely upon the Holy Spirit in order for that love to be demonstrated to the world. So with that, I'm going to conclude my, I guess, uh, my discussion of this, uh, and, and I want to see if there are any 
of you who would like to have um, make a comment or have a last word, so to speak. Now, Rich, this is your gospel because I know you well enough to know that you have uh, recited the verse to me several times, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's right out of the gospel of John. John was a Jewish writer, I should say Jewish Christian, who knew Judaism well, and who had a very experiential sense of jumping from that trajectory of law to the trajectory of grace. And it comes out so beautifully in his, in his gospels, in his gospel and his letters, I should say. Well, hearing no uh, questions, I will um, conclude our time together. I, I want you to know if uh, I've enjoyed this. And, and as I say, this has been woefully <laughs> inadequate to talk about this development of theology over time. But I think it's important to remember that the Hebrew Bible does not contain one monolithic theology in terms of its understanding of God. This is a people's faithful testimony over time to the experience of God's liberating acts in history. And those liberating acts are always different. Let me just say that again. This is a faithful testimony uh, to people's, a faithful testimony to people's experience of God and God's liberating acts in history over time. Uh, and as in a marriage, you know, though you love somebody in the beginning, that love develops and you get to understand them better uh, the more that marriage progresses. The marriage of God and the people of Israel was very similar to the point where you might say the, you know, the marriage vows were renewed uh, with the coming of Christ. Uh, and a new understanding of God and God's people uh, was, was given uh, to the world. And that's open to everybody. Uh, and that's that centrifugal understanding of, of knowing what it means to be the light of the world. Going out and if not proclaiming verbally or you know, the way we often know, proclaiming the gospel by simply being that love. And I'll conclude with something that St. Francis once said, and that is, preach the gospel always, the gospel of love. And if necessary, use words. I'm sure you've heard that before. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. So I'm going to leave you all now to go out and be the gospel. And we're right at 1015. I'll conclude our recording after... Uh, we all sign off. Are there any, um, any further questions that people would like to bring up? Comments? I'd just like to say thank you for helping us to reinforce what love is and um, how we can better live our lives uh, simply through actions and not just words. Right, right. And that's what, you know, uh, Greg says every, every Sunday, you know, that we are a community of hope. Now, we're not going out and telling the world, hey, there's hope, there's hope. You know, in some ways we are doing that, but that's not the exclusive way. I think it's through our actions as a church that we are living that. And that's uh, very important. So, anyone else? Thank you, Rich. You're welcome. Yeah. Yes. Thank Go you, ahead. Dan. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, this thank is, you. This is this has been a wonderful a wonderful uh, series for me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I I do too. It's been it's been nice. So, well, yeah. thank you, Dan, and everyone. As right. Oh, uh, thank you for giving up the the pet blessing in the in the <laughs> park. 
to join us here. You know, I, I think the pet blessing would have been a lot more fun just to see whoever who all showed up, turtles and cats and dogs. And like that. My cats learned to behave too well, so oh, okay. <laughs> That's all that I'm here. Okay, well I'm gonna end our session now. Thank you everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Bye. Thank you, Dan. Bye. Appreciate Bye. it.